Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to a new series of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from the unique morale-raising efforts of one of the world's best-selling authors to the crown jewels, from the battle for the Pacific to the struggle for survival in a prisoner of war camp. We begin this week with this from Tracy Ridley. I love family stories and I'm so pleased it's back. This isn't so much a family story, but is a connection with that famous author who liked all things pink, Dame Barbara Cartland. The connection to her is via my granddad, who was writing a book in the early 1990s about the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS. He himself had done his bit and was sent home after being wounded in Normandy. He died suddenly in the 90s, before he could finish the book. After his death, the book and all with it were stored in boxes in the family attic. After so many years, and because of my interest in history, I adopted the boxes and found to my delight an array of information about the ATS, including correspondence between my granddad and Winston Churchill's daughter, Lady Mary Soames. She had agreed to write the foreword for his book. That was impressive enough but I also found a small pink booklet tied up in pink ribbon with a picture of a lady inside wearing her ATS uniform and three to four pages of typewriter copy. The lady was Barbara Cartland and this is what she had to say about her time in the ATS. The ATS and Me by Barbara Cartland When war started, my husband and I were living in London so we moved with our children to a little 400-year-old thatched cottage we owned near Bedford. Both my brothers were missing at Dunkirk, and I started off in the WVS until I learned the Army Welfare Service was desperately short of a welfare officer. I became the only lady welfare officer to 20,000 troops stationed in Bedfordshire. I was gazetted an honorary junior commander of the ATS because it made it easier for me to be allowed into the many secret stations there were in the country. The first thing I felt I had to do for the ATS was raise their morale. They longed to have pretty underclothes to wear under their uniform. With the help of an Air Force officer, we found a hole in the handicrafts, 
we are allowed to buy material for handicrafts free of coupons. I went to Peter Jones in London, where I bought the most beautiful silk crepe de chine, chiffon for less than two shillings and sixpence a yard. In a few months, the ATS and the WAFs all had very attractive cami knickers. I inspected the secret stations and found most of them were dreary and scarcely furnished. So I persuaded the BBC, who were evacuated to Bedford, to give musical evenings. The War Office had painted the walls of the secret stations in a battleship grey, which was even more depressing than their work, which they found extremely dull because they never saw a shot fired in anger. I found I could buy Hessian free of coupons, and I had it dyed bright red for curtains. After a few months, the girls came to me saying, What are we to do? We cannot get married in our uniforms. They were only allowed 12 coupons a year. I went to the War Office, where I asked the women generals if I could have some extra coupons, but I was told they had tried to get concessions for brides, but the Board of Trade was adamant. Didn't I know there was a war on? I was determined not to be defeated. I advertised in The Lady and bought two very pretty wedding dresses, one for £7, the other for £8. I sent them as a gift to the Chief Controller and suggested it would be easy to get others. In reply, I was told they would have a pool at the War Office if I bought the dresses. By the end of the war, I had bought over 1,000 second-hand wedding dresses, which were hired to the brides for £1 a day. The ATS found it difficult on many of the stations like Cardington, where they were making parachutes, simply because they did not feel they were in the war. In Bedfordshire, we had very few raids, although London was being raided every night. To vary the depression, I got various people to come down to speak to them, including the Countess Manbatten and Godfrey Wynne, who they all enjoyed. Then I discovered that HM Queen Marie of Yugoslavia was living in a small depressing house surrounded by fields of Brussels sprouts. I asked her if she would visit the stations, and she was delighted to do so. At least they had a queen to look at, although they were rather disappointed she was not wearing a crown. Towards the end of the war, I decided that we would have an exhibition for the St John Ambulance Brigade, which Lady Mountbatten had made me join. Every station helped me, especially the ATS, who were excellent in transforming tin soldiers into ambulancemen. We had a large opening in Bedford by the Duchess of Kent, and when the war ended, the exhibition was taken to St James's Place and opened by Her Majesty the Queen. It then toured England and made £35,000 for local funds. The ATS were no trouble at all, and although there were a certain amount of pregnancies, there were much less than I expected. When the war ended, Eastern Command gave me the Certificate of Honour. That was from Tracy Ridley and Dame Barbara Cartland. Our next story is from Madeline Johnson. Hi guys, every time I listen to an episode, I'm struck by how beautifully you managed to combine the sacred and the profane, the hardware and the humanity, if you want to put it that way. Well, thank you, Madeline. Listening to your Manila episode reminded me it's a Second World War chapter that not many people know about, even Americans for whom it's all Normandy and Nazis. My father was rushed through medical school after Pearl Harbor. He'd already been in the Navy ROTC, so he was commissioned as a medical officer in the Navy as soon as possible. He was in Chicago, where the ship he was assigned to was being built by the Pullman Railroad Car Company in their yards on Chicago's south side. Dad went down to the yard to see the keel laid. It was sailed down the Mississippi. 
My father picked it up in New Orleans and went on its shakedown cruise through Panama Canal and then to the Pacific. The ship was in the battles of Leyte Gulf and then Ningayan. It was the first one into Manila Bay and later Tokyo. I have its flag, the first American one in either port. In Manila, Dad got a fellow from the army to drive him around in a jeep. They went by the Manila Mint, where the only thing left standing was a wall of silver bricks. Dad helped himself to one. He cut a corner off it and carved a ring for my mother using his dental tools. Dad had heard that the painter Fernando Amasolo, considered the Rembrandt of the Philippines, had fled to some place outside Manila. My father knew Amasolo had a drinking problem, but figured that with the Japanese occupation, the painter had probably sobered up. My father wanted his portrait painted and wanted to get Amosolo before he fell off the wagon. So dad tracked him down and sat for his portrait. It hung in our dining room and my brother has it now. In 1971, my father quit work for six months and we went around the world, the first part following the route his ship had taken. We stayed at the Manila Hotel, which still had bullet holes in the swimming pool. And my father said, last time I was here, the Japanese were fighting on one floor and the Americans were fighting on another. We Have Ways has made me realise what this journey meant to my father and why we went by ship when we could have flown to Australia. My father, unlike many veterans, talked a lot about his war experience. There's much I've come to understand only with age, and thanks to We Have Ways. Here is one story I remember. During a break in the action, when my father's tiny ship was near an aircraft carrier with full medical staff, Dad sought out a psychiatrist. My father was not big on psychiatry. But he told the psychiatrist he didn't think he could take seeing another beautiful, healthy young man's body mangled or destroyed. Am I crazy to feel this way? He asked the psychiatrist. No, the psychiatrist told him. You'd be crazy if you didn't. After the war, Dad returned to civilian life as a surgeon. My father specialised in burn reconstruction, but I think he missed the adventure of the war. He went to Vietnam twice to work in a civilian hospital and was there during the Tet Offensive. That was from Madeline Johnson. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before, because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. 
Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Our next story comes from Alan Wilson. My dad served in the Royal Navy during World War II. He was an apprentice marine engineer in a reserved occupation when he joined in 1943, and he eventually worked his way up to the rank of Chief Petty Officer by the time he left in 1946. During his time in the Royal Navy, he served as an engineer on a number of ships, including HMS Warspite, one of the Queen Elizabeth-class battleships, and HMS Sheffield, a Southampton-class cruiser. During D-Day, he was on HMS Warspite, which was involved in supporting the American landings. Sadly, he died when he was only 57 and I was 16, so he didn't speak much about his time in the Navy. But he did tell me one story from his time on board HMS Sheffield. He said that after the war in Europe was over, the ship was sent to Portsmouth for refitting and preparation to be sent to Japan. The ship was operating on a skeleton crew, as most had been given leave before heading east. One day, during the refit, the ship was ordered to sea and the crew were not told where or why they were sailing. They had a number of escorts and sailed west towards the US. They eventually laid up off Boston Harbour before sailing in at night. Once docked, most of the crew, apart from the engine room and the senior officers, were taken off the ship and marched to a wharf building. A few hours later, a number of trucks arrived with a heavy escort of marines. The trucks were unloaded and their cargo carried onto the Sheffield and put in the hold. The hold was welded shut and a marine guard was placed around it. With that done, the rest of the crew was let back on and they sailed that night back to England. The same thing then happened at Portsmouth. They docked after nightfall, the crew were taken off, and the hold was reopened and the crates removed. They were then loaded onto trucks and taken away. A few months later, the crew were told that the crates contained the real crown jewels, which had been taken in secret to Canada in 1940, and were now being returned to the UK. Hope you find this story of some interest. Alan Wilson Next, we have this story from Gary Napier. Hi, Alan James. Loving the podcast. I've recently made a site about my grandfather, Stan Johnson, 8th Lancashire Fusiliers, who was a German prisoner of war for five years. He wrote his story, and I put it online with pictures, maps, and an introduction. Here's a summary of his experience. Stan was captured during rearguard action on the day the Dunkirk evacuation started. He was only 19. In France, he was very lucky. At one point, his truck was shelled when he'd gone to fetch tea. And when he was captured, it was close to the Le Paradis massacre where 97 prisoners were executed. By late May, they were surrounded, with no choice but to surrender. He was transported east to Poland in what he describes as a nightmare journey. 40 or so men in each hot cattle truck, very little food and no toilet for a journey lasting nearly a week. They were then put to work for the next five years, experiencing constant hunger, hard physical work, lice disease, boredom and zealous discipline. Most of them must have had a sense of helplessness. They could not fight and were forced to help the enemy through work. At the end of his imprisonment, Stan endured one of the greatest hardships of the Second World War. As the Red Army advanced from the east in the winter of 1944-45, prisoners were forced to march hundreds of miles away from the front through open countryside in deepest winter. It became known simply as The March. 
For three months with temperatures well below freezing, they endured 20 mild daily marches, disease, frostbite and starvation with only a barn to sleep in at night. The Germans were supposedly picking up stragglers, but many were surely left to die, to which Stan himself almost succumbed on the very first day. The nightmare of the march was finally over by spring. However, it was still freezing and there was so little food that a stricken horse was quickly dispatched. There were now Allied bombing raids to contend with as well. It was difficult to discern targets from the camps, which by this stage were simply railway wagons. Stan witnessed the power of these air raids. A party was sent to clear up after an ammunition train was struck, finding total destruction and body parts littered around the site. There was also still danger on the ground. At one point, Stan was nearly shot after sneaking off to find food. Being so close to the end, he had to be careful, he said. Suddenly, one morning, the guards were gone and the Americans arrived. The relief was palpable in Stan's description of Germany immediately after the war. The prisoners and Americans hunted for Lugers and cameras, and the prisoners finally filled their bellies with good food and were able to wear clean clothes. There was time to celebrate with some Russians who got very drunk on vodka and an unidentified fuel. Luckily for Stan and his compatriots, they were able to escape the devastation. More relief came when the POWs were retrained for an invasion of Japan, but were not needed as the war in the East abruptly ended. Stan settled in the northeast of England until his death in 2003. And that was from Gary Napier. And for our final family story this week, we have this from Lloyd Crawford. Guys, back in the late 1980s, I was working for Joe Waring, formerly of the RAF Regiment a brilliant, self-effacing gentleman from a working-class Belfast background who'd lived a full life. It was an honour to know him. Many of his stories were small but illuminating. A few would make your hair stand up. Joe told me he wanted to join the RAF as aircrew, but his eyesight wasn't good enough, so he went into the RAF regiment. One night, Joe was standing guard in driving rain in front of an airship hangar in England when the duty officer pulled up in his car got out in his wool greatcoat and offered Joe a cigarette. That, said Joe, when I decided I wanted a commission. Once Joe was an umpire on an exercise near Kilkeel in County Down. As the unit marched back to camp, they came upon an accident with a jeep off the road. They stretched the injured men back to the barracks and Joe stuck a loose Bren gun over his shoulder. When he got back to his own barracks, it was very late, so he stuck the Bren under his bed. Next day, he cycled over to the injured men's camp, Bren slung over his shoulder, and was horrified to find the entire unit had pulled out overnight. Not knowing what to do with this buckshee Bren, he wrapped it in brown paper, tied with twine, and took it on the bus to stuff it in the roof space of his father's house in Sunnyside Street, Belfast. I only remembered about the Bren when I saw the houses being torn down to build flats in the 1960s, he said. In the North Africa campaign, Joe was captured while guarding a fuel depot. During a short rest in the long march into captivity, Joe and his best friend sat on a low wall. His friend leaned over to Joe and said quietly, when everyone gets up, drop behind the wall. Just as Joe turned to ask what, the prisoners were ordered to their feet. My friend put his arm across my chest and pushed me back over the wall and we hid there until the column was gone. Joe made his way back to British lines and was soon back in action. Joe was a beachmaster for a landing in Greece. It was unopposed, but he had to run up the beach with mine tape for the rest of the troops to follow, the idea being that if he blew up, someone else would have to run on past his remains, and so on. 
In Greece, Joe was billeted with a local town planner. One day, he and his sergeant, a Norfolk poacher of some repute, were out on the mudflats when two local men with their own shotgun came up and started chatting. Joe naively gave them some cartridges, whereupon they immediately loaded their gun and held Joe and his sergeant up. As they walked away laughing, the sergeant pulled a thirty-eight Special from his boot and shot one of the lads in the leg, handed the good shotgun back to Joe and smashed the local's own gun. I was never so delighted to see someone produce an illegally held firearm, said Joe. Joe was an inspiration, as so many of his generation were to mine. Honest, straightforward, considerate, intelligent. It was a privilege to work for him. I do hope you can use this to help remember such an inspiring character. That came from Lloyd Crawford. Thank you, Lloyd. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Goodbye for now. <laughs>